Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. So pop historical quiz, everybody. How many presidents have been impeached twice? Nobody Zero. yet. Zero. Zero a number. hour and a half or so. Not only double impeached, but also lost the popular vote twice. Twice. <laughs> also a first time. I'm going to call him Donnie two times from now on. Ooh. That's going to stick. Hello and welcome to Rational Security, the so not nice they impeached him twice edition. That's that nice of you, Shane. (laughs) So not nice. I've still never been impeached either. At least not yet. Yet, yet. There's still time. We might 25th Amendment you from this podcast, though. (laughs) I mean, apparently you can impeach somebody pretty fast. You know, the Washington Post has a little known impeachment process. Oh, they do. They They do, do, yes. Yes, as I'm sure you know as well, being a defrocked journalist. Indeed. I, how do you think I got the defrocked title? <laughs> ben was impeached from the editorial. <laughs> oh, impeached, my. Impeached, but not removed. Impeached, but not removed. Exactly. He left of his own accord. He left his own accord. You don't see me still working at the Washington Post, do you? No, I do not. I have not seen you in the halls. Actually, I haven't seen many people in the halls for quite some time. Uh, I am here in the remote jungle studio with my good friends, Ben Wittes, Tamara Kuffman Wittes, and Susan Hennessy. Hi, everybody. Hi. Hi. I'm giving you a Josh Hawley salute right now. Oh, is that right? Oh, that's good. Yes. Pumping your tiny fist in the air. (laughs) Uh, uh, We have to timestamp this again, you guys. It is 2.11 on a Wednesday afternoon, January 13th. And as we are recording, Donald Trump is not yet the only president in history to be impeached twice. He might even be, by the way, become the only publicly elected president federal official to be impeached twice. Uh, but I think we have every expectation that the House is going to do that uh, before the day's end. Anybody want to take the bet that they won't? No. No. I think I think the the like the good over under is how many Republicans vote right. for impeachment. So I think right now we've got six Republicans on the record as a yes. Then a strange group of Republicans telling reporters off the record they want to impeach but fear for their lives. Mm-hmm. Um, Which so- is a really odd thing. Like, if that's what you're worried about, doesn't that give you more reason to want him out? You'd think. Well, we are going to talk should we, about- Should we take the over-under bet? I'm going with 14. You're going to go wow. with 14? Okay. I'm All not right. that optimistic. Over a dozen. Yeah. Over a dozen. Okay. I'm going to say we get to 10. I would say ten. I'm gonna go ten and under. All right. Well, too bad. You should have. You should have said nine and like prices rated me. Oh yeah, shit. <laughs> One dollar, Bob. I think when Liz Cheney goes, so goes fourteen Republicans. All right. Well, we're gonna talk about that on the podcast this week. The House prepares to impeach President Trump again. This time for his role in stoking an attack on the Capitol. President-elect Biden announces more national security appointments, including his nominee to lead the CIA. And Mike Pompeo, you remember him, 
Break some diplomatic furniture on the way out the door. We'll meet again. <laughs> don't know where, don't know when, but I know we'll meet again some sunny day. He's going to show up at your house with a plate of fudge and make you eat every <laughs> fucking bite. This I'm gonna. Happen. I'm gonna think of goodbye songs to sing Mike Pompeo all through the show today. All right, that can be your musical our musical outro. When Mike Pompeo is elected president in 2024, you are gonna eat these words, Ben. I'm, I'm gonna totally get a nasty letter about my, you know, but this time on White House stationery. Yeah, uh, you exactly. should be better than that, Ben. Who has the last laugh now, Ben? <laughs> P.S. That man would absolutely do that. Okay. No doubt. Very on brand. All right. Let us start with the news that is ticking by here uh, and the news of last week. Listeners will remember we were we were on the air, quote unquote, uh, when the riot at the Capitol broke out last week. uh, And a lot has happened since. But Ben, kick us off here. As of our recording, as I said, the House is preparing to impeach the president. I guess big highlights here would be uh, that the minority leader, uh, Kevin McCarthy, has publicly said he blames Donald Trump for the riot, but doesn't feel he should be impeached. So that sort of seems to be the Republican leadership side of things. Democrats obviously are probably going to vote, as a, I think, as a block to impeach him. Uh, they will be joined by Republicans, including Adam Kinzinger, uh, as well as Liz Cheney, the number three Republican in the House. There's been some debate over whether incitement was the best term to use. We're not going to spend a lot of time on that as far as the article. But give us a sense, Ben, of like kind of where we are in this moment and importantly, where we see this going next. And I will just add the breaking news that Mitch McConnell has said he will not bring the Senate back for a trial before the inauguration, which means if there is to be a trial, it's going to happen when Joe Biden becomes president after that next week. Well, so it turns out that the president organizing, uh, fomenting, inciting, whatever word you want, a riot invasion of the Capitol a dozen days before he leaves office is actually not a scenario that the framers of the Constitution, or for that matter, the framers of the 25th Amendment, specifically considered. And so it leaves Congress with actually no really good remedy, right? So you can't use the 25th Amendment without the vice president's active instigation. And Mike Pence apparently doesn't think that the president trying to get him lynched or shot by a firing squad is good enough reason for him to uh, do anything. Impeachment, of course, takes a while because it has this whole trial thing component to it. And by the way, the president retains all his powers in the period of the trial. And so it doesn't really like if the goal is to do something about Trump for the last seven to 12 days of his presidency, 12 when it started, seven now, it doesn't really serve that function very well either. And then, of course, uh, the criminal process doesn't help you much because the president isn't amenable to criminal prosecution while he remains in office. And so you have this weird lacuna in all the mechanisms that are supposed to retain, you know, constrain the presidency for this situation that is really time bound and doesn't involve 
you know, a clear disability of the sort that would let Mike Pence without, you know, seeming to betray the president, like unconsciousness or something, you know, take over his powers. And I I think it actually reveals something pretty substantial in the emergency situation that isn't available to Congress. Not that Congress would obviously use it if it were available to them. What it does do is it draws a very harsh, clear moral and legal line, and particularly to the extent that they get a significantly bipartisan vote. That really does say something in a way that about what Congress as an institution regards as unacceptable, and assuming that we can get through the next seven days, it also provides, if you can get enough senators to vote to convict, it provides a basis for his disqualification for further holding of office of honor and trust, which is would be no small thing. So I I don't want to say that it's useless and symbolic because it's useful and symbolic, but I do think it is primarily, unless a bunch of senators come around and support the conviction, I do think it is primarily symbolic. Well, I was going to say before Tammy speaks too, well, just to add to your point, it's symbolic now, but to your point, if what happens next makes this like not only not symbolic, but highly political, highly practical, and far more significant than the first impeachment. But Tammy, go ahead. Yeah, I mean, that that's actually, I'm thinking back to a year ago when we were talking about the first impeachment. And we said over and over again, properly, that impeachment is not as much a legal proceeding as it is a political proceeding. And and Ben just outlined why this procedure doesn't function very well to constrain the president in his last decade formally, but it does informally. I mean, in his, <laughs> Holy it shit. feels like a decade in his last nine days that feels like a decade, but it does informally. And, you know, there are two targets, two audiences for impeachment. One is the GOP and the future of the GOP, which is what Shane just mentioned, And the fact that there are Republicans already out publicly supporting it, I think, is significant. The fact that Mitch McConnell leaked that he sees this as impeachable is really significant. But the other audience is Trump himself, because he believes he does have a political future. He does have ambitions. He is unbowed. And so, you know, setting aside his mood, whatever bile or irrationality may have set in for these last nine days, to the extent he's thinking past these last nine days, it is possible to use impeachment to constrain him by threatening the viability of his political future. It's a chicken game that is going on between the future, a non-Trump future for the GOP and a Trump future, period. And that chicken game, the right side has to win. And that's why impeachment is so important. Yeah, look, I I think one thing to note is we're talking about this as being like purely symbolic. That might be the case. We better hope it's the case that we get all the way to, to January 20th and nothing else happens that makes the failure to immediately remove the president look unwise in retrospect. So people were sort of angry at me on the internet yesterday for saying that I thought Mike Pence's letter was pretty defensible and basically saying he wasn't going to invoke the 25th Amendment. He actually didn't take the 
the step of coming out and saying, I believe the president of the United States currently possesses, you know, the faculties that is able to discharge the functions of his office. Instead, he said, I don't think it's the right thing for the country. Um, so I, I was open to the argument that the 25th Amendment was the appropriate remedy and could be reasonably applied here. Um, if Mike Pence doesn't actually genuinely believe the president is unable to fulfill the functions of his office, um, then he can't, you know, invoke the 25th Amendment. That's not what it's for. And so all of these decisions are going to look one way or another in retrospect, because I think we are in, still in a really fraught and dangerous period. Um, the other thing I think it's worth sort of thinking about is thinking about impeachment, um, not necessarily through the lens of political accountability for Trump, but political accountability for Republicans. And so I think what Tammy just described is absolutely right, right? We're seeing sort of the fight for the future of the Republican Party. Um, we're seeing some members get out sort of early and loud and say, we're voting for impeachment. And we, uh, I think that's a pretty clear symbol of sort of, we want to move the party, uh, sort of leave Trump behind, cut ties, move ourselves back in, in, into another direction moving forward. You have sort of the, the Trumpists, the, you know, the Jim Jordans, of course, opposing impeachment, of course, defending the president. And then you have this big, mushy center of people, um, of members of the Republican caucus in the House that are like trying to see which way the winds are going to blow. And I think the reason why I'm less optimistic than others about um, there being lots of Republicans willing to vote for impeachment is because that's that's requiring them to go on the record about how bad this was and about how bad Trump was. And they are afraid that their voters are going to hold them accountable for that one way or another. And it's easy to distance yourself from like the disapproving tweet or or the statement or, or to point to it if it's convenience later on and everyone's turned against Trump as see, I opposed him. Um, but if the wind's cut in the other direction and it turns out that really what they're trying to do is memory hold this and pretend as if it wasn't really that bad, um, it's pretty hard to distance yourself from an impeachment vote. And so I, I um, would strongly suspect that that's the lens through which lots and lots of Republican members are thinking about their votes today. All right, let's talk about the attack on the Capitol here now, which was the catalyst for this impeachment. Um, Susan, to you first, we reported yesterday in the Post that the FBI had prepared a report prior to the attack on January 6th that was based on online comments that groups or agitators, however you want to think about them, were preparing to wage a, quote, war in Washington, which uh, seemed to contradict earlier FBI statements that there was no advanced intelligence of this attack. You know, there was a huge amount of open source information precisely about what these people planned to do. And of course, the president told them to go march on the Capitol. It's still not entirely clear why the police weren't posed to meet this threat. I'm sure we're going to talk about that in future episodes. But what is clear is that the FBI is conducting a huge investigation um, there have already been arrests. There will be more. The uh, seditious conspiracy laws may come into play here. Give us your sense of how we should be thinking about what the Bureau is doing. Should we think of this like a traditional law enforcement investigation? Or is this something more akin to a counterterrorism operation, uh, which we have a lot of familiarity with over the past 20 years, where you try to break up a terrorist network and find out who's in it and preempt future attacks? Or maybe it's a little bit of both. 
Yes, I think there's just a ton of different layers that we're all going to be sort of sorting through and unpacking um, for many, many months to come. Um, So sort of this question of the intelligence failure and the rationales that uh, the Capitol Police and uh, and House and Senate Sergeant Arms have given about not wanting to have this overly militarized response and and I guess course correcting from the summer, uh, that's uh, sort of not defensible because you, of course, could have been prepared to respond quickly if things turned violent. I mean, this was um, whether they didn't see the intelligence uh, and should have, or whether they saw the intelligence and didn't take it seriously. Um, We're going to be talking about what exactly the failure was uh, uh, in terms of that, I I think, for a long time. Um, In terms of the status of the ongoing investigation, it's it's clearly a sprawling federal investigation that's going on right now and a pretty serious one. Um, And one that I think there are at least three uh, sort of buckets through which we might think about it. Um, so one is, you know, the the Bureau has said that there are at least 170 ongoing investigations right now. Um, a large bucket of those are like illegal entry, civil disorder, theft, assault, um, right? Sort of uh, the types of offenses we might imagine applying to sort of uh, rioters who came uh, without a specific plan or specific intent and then sort of opportunistically committed lots and lots of crimes. Um, and that sort of uh, appears to be being pieced together by like who was dumb enough to live stream and how quickly can they find these people. Um, There also is, I think, simultaneous to that, I think a pretty clear investigation about a group of individuals who were a part of this um, that were, there's every indication they were prepared to do something far more nefarious, um, that they came to the Capitol. um, uh, You know, there are members who, uh, who said that they saw colleagues giving tours that they described as reconnaissance tours, apparently had maps of the Capitol, uh, you know, targeted specific offices, um, you know, were engaged in, in something, um, you know, far, far more sort of serious and dangerous. That investigation, I think, is the type that's going to produce, um, you know, the more sort of serious, like seditious conspiracy type charges. Um, and then on top of all of this, of course, there's a federal, there's a, a you know, a murder investigation, a homicide investigation for this police officer. And, uh, you know, we see the police, uh, we see the, the sort of FBI leaning forward. They've now produced an image, somebody who's wanted in connection with that particular attack. And they said that they have 100,000 uh, sort of uh, tips at this point. So it's going to take a, a long time. Um, it's clearly a serious investigation, um, you know, in, in terms of the resources that are being put to this. But you might not know that from the outside, because the person who gave us this information yesterday and provided this briefing um, was not the FBI director. It was not the acting attorney general. Um, it was not the, the show of force of the leadership of federal law enforcement. Um, instead, it was the acting U.S. attorney for Washington uh, and the head of the FBI field office. And so there's this really bizarre mismatch between the gravity of the situation at issue, all indications about the seriousness of the ongoing investigation, and yet the kind of MIA nature of FBI and DOJ leadership. Acting AG Rosen put out a, uh, a video, like not even, he didn't take messages, but late last night put out sort of this meandering video about how they're taking it really seriously. Ray issued a statement that was um, sort of very generic in the early days, hasn't been seen from since. And so uh, that is a little bit of, of a weird disconnect because this is a moment in which you would expect 
them to really want to send the message that like leadership cares about this. This is really serious because by the way, there's this third bucket, which is there's clearly is still an active ongoing threat. Capitol police officers are walking up and down our street. Uh, they're searching, apparently they're searching for things like pipe bombs. We've seen at least one charge of somebody who's made a threat to the inauguration. So whenever you mention sort of the, the traditional counterterrorism investigation, that clearly is a piece of this. And by all indications, they believe that threat is ongoing and potentially like pretty imminent. So I actually want to take a moment and defend the radio silence from federal law enforcement right now under the very odd circumstances that we face. There are two and only two ways that Donald Trump can interfere in this investigation in a very substantial way in the seven days he has left. One is to blanket pardon, you know, to give some kind of amnesty to the to the individuals in question. And the other is to fire law enforcement leadership, which he has the authority to do. And of course, notably, both with respect to attorneys general and with respect to FBI directors, he has developed something of a habit of doing. And so I think if you are Chris Ray for whom my enthusiasm is altogether under control, I assure you all, or Jeffrey Rosen, you have two really important imperatives right now, and they both relate to Susan's tripartite characterization of the subjects of this investigation. The, the first is to arrest as many people at the higher end of the offense categories as you can, as quickly as you can. Because it is way harder if you're Donald Trump to give a blanket amnesty to people who committed property crimes that basically amount to sort of glorified violent trespassing than it is to give a blanket pardon to a group that includes murderers and people who smeared shit on the walls of the Capitol and people who beat, you know, police officers and broke windows of, of the Capitol. Like, those are very different things. And people who put bombed pipe bombs in the DNC and RNC, the more you can elevate the list of people that you've charged, the more serious things you can charge and the uglier those people look. You know, it matters that they've charged Camp Auschwitz guy. And, you know, these emphasize that it isn't a joke. And so the expeditious nature of the investigation is really important here. And the second thing is, you actually don't want to get fired in the middle of this. And so I think under those particular circumstances, and I've been very critical of, you know, the way Chris Ray has not spoken on behalf of federal law enforcement in his tenure as FBI director, but under these specific circumstances, I'm kind of sympathetic to it. And I think, you know, you wait seven days, you wait till Merrick Garland gets confirmed you have your meeting with Merrick Garland and then the new attorney general and the and the FBI director go out and give an update together. 
I don't think that's the worst outcome in the world. Yeah, so like just to briefly respond, I- I'm sympathetic to all of those arguments, but I will say that one, I'm uh, less concerned that the FBI director being removed at this point would actually be as operationally disruptive as it might be in other instances in the past. Um, right, this clearly is an investigation happening kind of at, at the field office level, as clear from the from the briefing. Um, the other thing is to the extent that you want to prevent uh, and and discourage other individuals who might uh, you know come to the Capitol on inauguration day or beforehand. I actually do think there's important symbolic value in like telling those people like don't even mess around with this. You come and like you will pay serious consequences for this. And the FBI director is uniquely well positioned to send that kind of visible message. And so I, I agree, Ben. Those are the trade offs that are clearly at issue. But I, I would have made it otherwise because I, I would have made the made the trade off otherwise because I think the single most important thing he can do is serve as a warning to others who might want to come and commit acts of violence. So listening to this debate, I totally understand the calculation. But to me, the reason behind the calculation, if Ben is correct, just emphasizes how impeachable this president is. Like, this is basically, right? (laughs) This is basically about intimidating the senior law enforcement leadership or trying to avoid provoking additional lawless incitement by the president. That's pretty awful. So let's just pause on that and notice it. The second thing I want to say is that there is clearly a lot that we don't know yet out here in the public about the conversations between the White House and people who are involved in this activity conversations between people on the Hill and people who were involved in this activity. There are some members of Congress who are starting to talk now about what they saw or heard from colleagues. But I assume that the FBI is getting call records. I assume the FBI is, you know, gathering traffic. And I suspect we're going to find out that there were people in positions of public trust who are directly implicated in this, if not instigating it, then enabling it or directing it. And I I really want to know that. I think we need to know that. But I think we have to remember this isn't just about Trump and the threat of official complicity does not end when Trump leaves office. There may be impeachments to come. Who knows? Um, all right. While we are saying adieu to the Trump administration, uh, we're going to be saying but bonjour to the Biden administration. <clears throat> Bonsoir. How do you would you say hello? Nobody's picking up on this. You're 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 beyond my language, my uh, foreign language skills. <laughs> Just say aloha, Shane. Then it, it, aloha. Works, it works no matter what. <laughs> aloha, Bill Burns. President-elect Biden. Uh, in the wake of Democratic victories in Georgia that will hand the Democrats control of the Senate, let's keep that in mind for context here, has announced another round of appointments for his administration. Not all of them will require Senate confirmation, but some big ones will. Um, Susan, I mentioned Bill Burns. He is the pick for director of the CIA. He is a career diplomat and an extraordinarily well-known one to the extent that foreign policy kind of heavies uh, have a big visible presence. He's kind of on that list, I guess. He was not, though, on the early shortlist for CIA. So talk about what we need to know about him 
and what you make of this pick. And then we're going to get into some of the others as well. Yeah. So I'm going to start with a li- just a line of disappointment that I can't move on from. And that's that I- I'm really disappointed this wasn't a woman. Um, this was an easy place to put a woman in a visible senior national security role. Um, the Biden campaign committed to doing this. They said they would have parity in senior national security appointments. And gosh, from where I'm sitting, it looks an awful lot like the the dudes got the big jobs with the exception of, of, uh, of Real Haynes. Uh, as the DNI. Phil Burns is so white, his hair is white. <laughs> and the ladies um, are going to be great deputies. Gosh, they're going to be really great second in commands. And like, you know what? Ugh, it's hard to feel real excited about that at the moment. Um, and I, I would be uh, sort of more able to overcome that disappointment if the candidate was so uniquely qualified, right? There was this really compelling justification. So that's how I feel about the attorney general, another place in which we just as easily could have seen uh, Lisa Monaco, who's been selected as the DAG, as Attorney General, other sort of uh, women uh, contenders for that role. You know, that said, Merrick Garland, there's such a unique and specifically compelling case that I can sort of overlook it and understand. Um, I, I have to say, even looking at Burns's record, which is um, is perfectly fine, it's not a record that sort of leaps out to me as, as sort of justifying this. And so, um, ugh, like, I, I just think we should be frank, and I don't know how many other people sort of share that view, but um, that that part of it was was just disappointing to me. Um, and I, I don't accept the idea that like this is about overall parity in the cabinet or that deputies should count as the senior appointments. Like this was just a, 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 a no-brainer. There were 10 women who could have done that job. And it, it says something that they didn't pick that person. Can I just, just quick on that too? A name that came up in the end, like Bill Burns, that my sources were very excited about, Lisa Monaco. Right, who ultimately is going to be the deputy attorney general, but a number of people looked at her and said, "Oh, she'd be great, totally qualified." You know, we know her. It's, it's possible that she preferred to be the now deputy attorney, want it. but like yeah, yeah, Sue Gordon, there, there were literally like a dozen women at yeah. least qualified for that role whose Michelle names Florida were known to the yep. transition. There's no mystery here. So it was a choice. Well, and it's going to be interesting, too. I mean, just to keep on this for a second, you know, much of the senior leadership of the CIA right now is women, are women, and including the director, obviously, Gina Haspel. So, you know, maybe just to mention a little bit about Bill Burns and his background. I mean, somebody who is intimately familiar with intelligence, both as a consumer of it, but, you know, worked in Amman as ambassador, was the ambassador to Moscow. Like, he knows the agency. I think, you know, David Ignatius even described him kind of as the classic gray man, which, you know, okay, I guess. In but more ways than one. In more ways than one. But it does sort of underscore also, interestingly to me, this kind of return to what people think of as what you value in a CIA director, which is somebody with a ton of like global experience or political experience, and importantly, direct line to the White House. And he will have that with Joe Biden. By the way, any number of these other women also would have had that. Yeah, look, Shane, I do not want to suggest that Bill is anything but a fantastically qualified person for this role. But I think there was a missed opportunity for all the reasons that Susan noted. And I would say that there's a missed opportunity across these senior national security appointments, not only on gender, but also on people of color. There are a lot of qualified names that did not get senior appointments. And so, you know, this is a place to start. What I would say, though, looking across the folks who've been appointed in these roles, 
is that by and large, there is one clear message that comes through here, which is diplomacy in front. And in that sense, I think the symbolism of putting Bill Burns, you know, career ambassador, former deputy secretary of state in the CIA role is significant, um, just as it's significant to have someone of Samantha Power's stature and diplomatic heft and star power heading USAID, which, you know, typically is like the agriculture department of national security cabinet appointments. I'm sorry. Here, have some rice. <laughs> you know, and so that I, I do find that really heartening and encouraging. I do think that was deliberate. And I do think that it speaks to the determination of the Biden administration to do what they say they want to do, which is rebalance the national security toolbox and have diplomacy in front. Yeah, so just to like briefly pick up on that, Tammy, I, I think that's a really important point that some of the most interesting things is actually the structural choices, not the personnel choices. So that they're not making the CIA director part of the cabinet. Um, that says as much about their intention for Avril Haines to operate as the sole and sort of undisputed head of the intelligence community. That's interesting. The other thing is not just the choice of Samantha Power as the head of USAID, but that she's going to be on the principles committee to the NSC. That says something about the, the role that see for that agency. And so I think even beyond like the actual picks, those are where kind of some of the interesting signs are starting to emerge. I can also just add, there is a strong push to pick a person of color for deputy CIA director. Go ahead, Ben. Well, you heard it here first. The effort to keep the CIA director subordinate to the DNI and outside the cabinet will not last. As long as there has been a DNI the DNI has been trying to assert itself and make itself, you know, a real, I was going to say a real boy in a Pinocchio reference, except that that would uh, uh, not correctly describe the incoming DNI's gender. If anyone can do it, it is Avril. But I actually think the structural impediments to the DNI, like that the CIA director actually has the people who, uh, you know, have the spies and the operational capacity is a very significant thing. And over time, every CIA director has beaten every DNI, you know, to the extent that they've really clashed. And I, I actually wonder if this is setting up another sort of battle between the senior leadership at CIA and ODNI that that ODNI cannot ultimately prevail in. I want to make pick up on that too for a second. And to Susan's very good point and, and Tammy's as well about structure being so important and who you elevate into what roles. I mean, I wonder, I agree with you totally, Ben. I am, you know, color me skeptical that you're really going to have a situation where the director of the CIA you know, the most storied intelligence agency in America becomes subordinate to a relatively new bureaucrat who is basically a budget director and a personnel manager. And it will come down entirely to relationships, as it always does. And I suspect that Bill Burns has known Joe Biden for quite some time, probably longer than Avril Haines. But at the same time, if what they're envisioning is the DNI to kind of be this forward-leaning policy apparatus around intelligence and to let the CIA go back to doing what the CIA does well, which is spy on foreign governments. And with that, the desire I know within the operations director to start doing more of that and not spending so much time blowing up terrorists, um, which they would like, 
Then if you can convince Bill Burns that actually there's where you add value to the foreign policy of the administration by intelligence supporting policy, it could work, <laughs> right? On paper, that could work. That, that's the theory. And that's been the theory since the 9-11 Commission first set up the idea of the DNI. And it was like, the, the basic idea is, hey, the head of NSA isn't in the cabinet, the head of the National Geospatial Intelligence, the head of the FBI director is not in the cabinet, you know, so let's have a head of the intelligence community and separate that function from the function of running the agency, the CIA. It makes all the sense in the world on paper. But then you have the John Rizzo, the former general counsel and Wiley old CIA hand who, who explains, I think, the reason why this doesn't work, which is that at the end of the day, the CIA is a pointy end of the spear and every president at some point or another, there are things you just can't get done with the State Department and you can do with the CIA. And they find that super attractive and that causes them to turn to the CIA for things. And that means turning to the CIA director for things. Yeah. Yeah, it's true. It's a way cooler job. Yeah, so I don't I, like I, I take all of that. That said, um, you know, there's the CIA has always been very good, unsurprisingly, at working their congressional relationships and congressional oversights of working the interagency process. And so, yes, of, of course, a president is going to turn to the CIA director for particular things. Um, that said, setting up structurally setting up sort of a chain of reporting authority. And also remember, um, you know, uh, the, the new DNI um, didn't fall off the back of a turnip truck. It's somebody who served as the deputy deputy director of the CIA and knows exactly what's going on in that building. And so, uh, right, the, the combination of the personnel and sort of the, the structural decisions, you know, there's always going to be competition. Um, there's always going to be people jockeying for influence. But this is as good as anyone could do in, in trying to sort of set up a counterweight to that. And we should acknowledge that Avril Haines may have wanted not to be CIA director and wanted to be running the DNI. It's entirely possible. Right. And we should also acknowledge that she has a very close relationship with Biden, having yeah. advised him on the campaign and through the yeah. transition. I guess I was thinking more with Burns and Biden to go back farther, but she's absolutely right. That relationship. Is right. And, and given the timing, she almost she almost certainly had a like a real voice in who the CIA director was oh, yeah. as well. I mean, it would be unthinkable that that she would already be nominated and, and not have been part of that decision. To wit, Tom Donilon is not the CIA director. Did I say that? I sure did. Okay, let's talk about Mike Pompeo. Speaking of diplomatic. <laughs> Goodbye, cruel world. Oh, I'm my. leaving you today. <laughs> goodbye, goodbye, goodbye. Oh, wow. That's, he's really going to appreciate that. I, I do love that Pompeo tried to get in like one last, you know, junket tour of Belgium in the final days. Like, got to load up that chocolate. Beer, yeah, come on. Got to enjoy those bennies before they run out. Oh, boy. Well, the Secretary of State is not going quietly into that good night. And he's doing more than just like stocking up on, uh, you know, Belgian triple. In his final days in office, the secretary is engaged in what former British Foreign Minister David Miliband called diplomatic vandalism. Tammy, mon dieu, what is the secretary up to here? 
That wasn't very diplomatic language from David Miliband, was it? <laughs> Quite subtle. Yeah. The Brits so, are known for that. <laughs> <laughs> so Miliband was referring specifically to one of the last minute decisions taken by Secretary Pompeo, which is the designation of the Houthi movement. This is the Yemeni uh, movement that kicked the legitimate government out, the Yemeni movement that the Saudis have been fighting with U.S. support to designate them as a foreign terrorist organization. And the reason that Miliband is so upset about this and the reason that many in the humanitarian assistance and development communities are upset is because it is such a broad ranging designation that it basically makes it impossible for international organizations or NGOs to provide humanitarian assistance to starving Yemenis. This is the worst humanitarian crisis on the planet right now. Um, you have millions of people dealing with not just COVID, but with cholera and severe malnutrition and starvation. Many people on the point of death who are now going to be denied basic humanitarian support because of this designation. It will also uh, significantly interfere with efforts to negotiate a ceasefire and and hopefully one day an end to the war, efforts that the United Nations has been deeply involved in. And so it's undercutting of, of that as well. Sadly, uh, the Houthi designation is only one of the acts of diplomatic vandalism that have been committed by Pompeo on his way out the door. He's really on a tear. I mean, not only is he taking decisions like declaring Cuba a state sponsor of terrorism, which is, you know, there's no new evidence on this one way or the other, and there hasn't been for years and years. This is literally just reversing an Obama decision for the sake of reversing an Obama decision in your final days. He also attempted to set new rules for the State Department on interacting with NGOs that have foreign funding and new rules on anti-Semitism uh, that would have effectively banned groups like Human Rights Watch from the building. Um, and he has spent the last two weeks since Christmas basically tweeting every day uh, just a ridiculous um, set of swaggery tweets about his supposed accomplishments. Now, all of that, I think, was a bubble full of hot air that got burst with a big boom this week by none other than the government of Luxembourg, uh, because Pompeo was being taken out by the government of Luxembourg, you know, which is 999 square miles. Uh, actually, like if you can do that, that's going to damage your swagger. Yeah. So this is quite an accomplishment, actually, by by the Luxembourgians. And I just have to read the lead of this uh, delicious piece from Borzu Daragi in The Independent. The administration of Donald Trump began its term four years ago with a promise that it would restore what it had described as America's lost global grandeur, winning the respect of friends and foes. It ended with a tiny nation about the size of Louisville brushing it off as an embarrassing nuisance. What happened? Well, what happened is that the Luxembourgian foreign minister, hearing that Pompeo wanted to make this final dash to Europe before the inauguration, went on TV and called President Trump an arsonist of democracy, which made it diplomatically impossible for Pompeo to meet with the Luxembourgians. 
And a bunch of European officials let it be known back channel that actually they didn't want to meet with him either. And with no meetings, the trip had to be called off. So Pompeo suddenly declared that a responsible transition of power required his presence in Washington. I just want to pause for a moment and remember that it was only a few weeks ago that these same European officials were exposed to COVID by one of Pompeo's senior aides on his last trip through Europe. It's no surprise to me, even despite the events at the Capitol last week, that they decided they could afford this parting blow off. It reminds me of that scene in Forrest Gump where they're all like, when Forrest is trying to sit on the bus, and they're like, taken. We don't want to sit with to you. Only in this case, they feel like it was like it was righteous. They're like, no, really, we don't have time to see you. No, you can't come to dinner. We are not at home to guests. I am going, I'm thinking of other songs about goodbyes. Farewell, ladies. Farewell, ladies. Farewell, ladies. We're going to leave you now. You pick a song that's like, like after 1946. There's well, one of them was Pink Floyd from the seventies. Come you on, know Pink Floyd is. I didn't hear any Pink Floyd. Goodbye, wow. Cruel World is a Pink oh. Floyd oh, song. Yeah. Come on, and who is Taylor Swift? Pop quiz. You guys, you guys are all <laughs> pop culture illiterates. Um, but I, that's not what I want to talk about. I wanted to talk about uh, Mike Pompeo. Um, there is actually a strategic, uh, you know, if you look at his uh, diplomatic vandalisms, they are. I think all proximately related to a 2024 campaign. What is his, you know, his essential foreign policy claim is all about Iran. So now he gets to say, I put the, uh, the Houthis who are an Iranian front on the terrorist list and Joe Biden took them off because that's going to happen at some point. If you want to have a peace process, you can't, have them on on that list. And secondly, and perhaps more importantly, you know, the uh, putting Cuba back on the state supporters of terrorism list is something he's going to campaign on in South Florida in the Miami Cuban community. You know, Barack Obama and Joe Biden took them off the state sponsor of terrorism list. We put them back on and they took them off again. And, you know, that's a that's stuff that has, there's a constituency for that kind of thing. And I think, you know, he's he's going out with a whole lot of I don't know what the constituency is for the the these crazy tweets that he's sending, except that he's clearly learned from Trump that crazy tweeting doesn't hurt you. But I do think that there's a there's a strategic component to the stuff that he's doing. Yeah, look, I would agree that he's trying to appeal to some very specific constituencies. But one consequence of this diss from the Europeans in the final week is that he can claim that he established or reestablished American prestige, but that claim is being frontally denied by the Europeans. No, you didn't. We don't think you're prestigious. Um, And that does really hurt him. I would say more broadly, if you have to constantly tell everyone why you're so full of swagger, your swagger is pretty empty. Mm -hmm. If you have to tell everybody. And if it it can be taken down by the Luxembourgers, uh, you know. And we're not we're, we're really not giving the Luxembourgians their due. I'm sure they have lovely like parking lots and um, I think it's probably it has the world's highest per capita income standard of living. Does it? Qatar. It, Qatar. Oh no, I think Qatar. it's higher than Qatar. 
thought it would have been like Monaco. Uh, I, th- I think Luxembourg is is like way up there. I'll look it up. These questions at the forefront of the minds of the rational security listener. I would just say Luxembourg and DC have about the same number of residents, so we could just swap. And we and we also would not like to meet with Mike Pompeo. Right. <laughs> well, he's not here, so you know. All right, let's move on to object lessons. Um, Tammy, you want to go first? Yours, yours is yours is very uh, of the moment. My, yes, my object is of the moment. So we on this podcast are all Gen X, although different parts of the Gen X spectrum, if you would say. And that means that we all grew up with Schoolhouse Rock. Now, you younger folks who are listening to this podcast are probably like, yeah, someone tried to show me Schoolhouse Rock. It's so dumb. My kids hated Schoolhouse Rock. What? I know. Really? Like, what's wrong with you people? But, they probably knew most of their civics education by the time they were four, so they, was, they didn't need this. And maybe as D.C. children, although I would say that most American children evidence, or most grown American children evidence, a clear need for some schoolhouse There are rock. members of Congress that should watch some schoolhouse rock. Yes. For sure. My object is schoolhouse rock themed. It is, you know, the remember the one about I'm only a bill and I'm sitting here on Capitol Hill. And when he, get, he gets kicked down the stairs. Only a bill. Exactly. So there's a little meme that's going around. Y'all have probably seen it of the bill sitting on the hill with a little kid saying, there's no song to explain this shit. Because <laughs> there ain't. It's like, I'm not going to lie to you, Jimmy. There's no song to explain this shit. I don't know why the bill sounds like Morgan Freeman all of a sudden, but. <laughs> and a Dufresne. Climb through a river of shit. Probably because he was on the electric company. Wait, was he really? Yes. <laughs> oh, man. I gotta go back and watch that. Um, ben, you want to do yours? I'll go last. Uh, so, according to the International Monetary Fund, uh, the highest per capita income country in the world is Luxembourg with $113,000 beating out Singapore and Qatar by uh, a good $15,000 each. Wow. So uh, Luxembourg, they can afford to tell Mike Pompeo to go fuck himself. (laughs) Then there goes the explicit rating again. Well, we blew through that a while ago. Yeah. My object lesson today is devoted, uh, is dedicated to Senator Josh Hawley, who, as we mentioned earlier, uh, came out of Congress and gave a raised fist salute to the protesters right before they stormed, or shortly before they stormed the Capitol. And um, I thought for Josh Hawley's benefit, a little history of the raised fist salute was probably a good idea because he clearly doesn't know what it means. The raised fist salute probably started during the French Revolution. There's, of course, the famous picture of the storming of the Bastille with the raised fist. It was appropriated all through the late 19th and early 20th centuries by socialist movements. So it definitely represents socialism, if it represents anything. The Nazis and the fascists didn't like its associations with that, so they turned it over, which is where the uh, the Nazi salute comes from. It's a, you know, so Josh Hawley should know that, you know, people of 
far-right political persuasions generally don't use it. And of course, it became famous in the United States, uh, both because of the labor movement, but particularly because of the black power movement. Uh, it was the, the symbol, the, the, the black fist, closed fist was a symbol of the Black Panther Party. And of course, Tommy Smith and John Carlos, who were the gold and silver medalists in uh, Mexico City in one of the track and field events, uh, both raised the Black Power salute in the context of their medal reception during the playing of the U.S. National Anthem. And so I thought Josh Hawley should understand that what he's doing when he raises his fist to those rioters is he's standing for socialism and black power. And I just thought he might want to know a little bit about that history. Uh, and so my, uh, my object today is the raised fist salute in honor of Josh Hawley. So you might say his use of the raised fist is not only awkward, but it's gauche. You might say it's illiterate. <laughs> I'm going with my French a lot thing of here. Things. Oh, okay. So speaking of a lot of things, there were a lot of things that were in the $2.3 trillion coronavirus relief fund uh, back in December. Uh, but did you know, dear listener, and I know this because our listeners are the best and alerted me to this, which you might say flew under my radar. There is actually a 180-day requirement for U.S. intelligence agencies to tell Congress what they know about UFOs. Whoa. Yes. Yeah. Did you write that into law, Shane? Yep, sure did. I started a, uh, a petition. When did we get the report? So 100, <laughs> the CNN report actually says then, no, really. Uh, so the DNI, <laughs> hey, Everett Haynes, and the Secretary <laughs> of Defense <laughs> have less than six months from now to provide the Congressional Intelligence and Armed Services Committees with an unclassified report about unidentified aerial phenomena. Uh, CNN reports it's a stipulation that was tucked into the committee content section of the Intelligence Authorization Act, which was then, of course, attached to the big uh, spending bill on uh, coronavirus relief. Uh, the report must contain detailed analyses of UFO data and intelligence collected by the Office of Naval Intelligence, the Unidentified Aerial Phenomena Task Force, and the FBI, and should also describe in detail, quote, an interagency process for ensuring timely data collection and centralized analysis of all unidentified aerial phenomena reporting to the federal It's happening, government. Shane. Wait, there's a task force? How did we not know there was a task force? Tammy, there was an entire show about it that ran for decades. What are you talking about? <laughs> from Area 51, the Shane Harris show. Yeah, I'm not holding my breath for this report to really say very much, but, you know. Okay, mark your calendars, everybody. Six months. We're going to do a whole show on it. Honestly, maybe this will be one of the things that Trump just tweets out, or I guess not tweets out, parlays out uh, in his post-presidential period will be like his his burning of classified information will will include that alien. He'll tell us all about the aliens. Hey, I, I'm here for it. You know, there's a way to redeem yourself for in the eyes of history. 1995, you can hear everything Donald Trump knows <laughs> about aliens. Get your tickets. But wait, act now and I will send you not the first volume, but the second volume Special absolutely edition free. gold bookmarks. <laughs> You're going to need this gold. Save your gold. It's a great long-term investment. 
Oh, just like this podcast has been a very good investment of your hour of your life. But that brings us to the end. Uh, Rational Security is, of course, a production of Lawfare. Uh, you can find, uh, don't we have like X-Files Rational Security joint coins, challenge coins? We have special helmets to protect you from the rays that enter your teeth. We have like tooth caps. Oh, good. That have Josh Holly's raised fist on them. Oh, you can very, them oh, oh, that would be good. Yeah. Like a little raised fist. I was going to say, like, Josh Holly, like cans of moose or something. Oh, have nice Limited <laughs> edition blow dryers, Josh Holly. <laughs> and they're all available at thelawfarestore.com. Dot blow dryer. <laughs> You can follow us on <laughs> you can follow us on Twitter at RATL Security. You can find us on Facebook. We have yet to be deplatformed on those places. Yet. Give it time. I was deplatformed on Facebook. That was like a mistake. Yeah. But right. we I, you know, hey, I it's just I'm just it's a correction. You were wrong. I, okay. I have been deplatformed. You have, but the show has not. But you know, technically speaking, yes, a one quarter of this show has been deplatformed. This is like a slice they took off of us. Jen Patya Howell's coming next. She's we will gonna, not going to take her out. Whenever you download the podcast, please be sure to leave a rating and review. It helps others find the show, and we really appreciate all of your support. Our audio audio engineer this week is Zachary Frank from Goat Rodeo. The show is produced and edited by the aforementioned Jen Patya Howell. A music this week, so it turns out President Trump was very jealous of last week when Mike Pence did his nude spoken word of the end in the well of the Senate. So now he is going to um, do his own Jim Morrison tribute, uh, Impeach Me Two Times. <laughs> oh, good. Nice. I got that reference. Thankfully, thankfully clothed. That's going to be going to be nice for all of us, especially Sophia Yan, who doesn't need to see that. On behalf of my good friends, Ben Wittes, Tamara Kaufman Wittes, and Susan Hennessy, I'm Shane Harris, still unimpeached. We'll see you next week. Bye. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.